All right, we are back again with another series of our What If Files, and I'm here with the co-host, Ben, and we have an unbelievable topic we're going to roll into. It's, it's a little bit extended, so we're going to do multiple shows and roll into some other stuff, and even some future stuff we have going on. We're going to go ahead and talk about Dave Politis and his missing 411 series that he does. He's a fantastic researcher. He dives into this stuff. And if you don't know him, I'll throw it up here. Make sure you hit the subscribe button and check him out. He's doing some news, but his missing 411 series is something you you shouldn't miss. Let's put it that way. Ben, how's it going? You did some definite speed research on this one and because it was a lot to cover, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been listening to uh, Dave's a lot of interviews with him over the past couple of years, but I didn't have any notes on it. So I had to go back and kind of re-listen and reacquaint myself with some of the cases and and some of the the notes that he has on this. But it's a very interesting phenomenon that seems to be happening um, in our national parks. And later we'll hear it. It it extends past that. So uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. All right, so why don't we do this? So why don't we start at the beginning, basically, and I'm going to let you kind of run with it like usual and just jump in when I have questions. So why don't you kind of start with it and uh, let's rock and roll. All right. Well, let's talk about Dave himself. He's a uh, graduate from the University of San Francisco. He's had a 20-year law enforcement career. If I'm not mistaken, that includes uh, he's he's been on SWAT team, undercover work, you know, the whole nine yards. And after he left the law enforcement career, he worked as a tech business investigator in development and acquisitions. And I can mm. only assume that that means if, uh, you know, a company is going to acquire another company, he was doing the investigative work. Right. And as, as find out. when you're in law enforcement for 20 years, uh, I was Coast Guard, but when you're in it for 20 years, it... It, your mind switches. Like I'm in logistics now and I've been in logistics for 20 years and, and it trains my mind to look at things a specific way. And it's it's a big deal to be in it 20 years and do all the stuff that he's done. Oh, yeah. And this definitely gives him a lot of credibility in the fact that, you know, a lot of these are, are you know, he's he's investigating some of these. And, uh, you know, we'll get into that and kind of how, how that progressed. During his work being a, a business investigator, he was approached with an unusual offer to prove the existence of Bigfoot. Mm. Now, I'm not entirely sure who this group was. I I have a feeling I might know, uh, but I don't think he ever mentions it. The idea that he and another guy had was trying to obtain DNA evidence of Bigfoot. So they came up with a very unique technique of doing that, which is actually very simple. Um, They would go out into the woods and they would take something like honey, maple syrup, something, you know, something sweet. And they would put it like about 18 feet up into a tree and kind of paint it onto the tree. And then they would take packing tape and they would wrap it around the tree underneath that with the sticky side facing out. So then they would leave and come back, you know, maybe a week or so later and they would pull that tape off and there would be hair all over it. And so they would take those hair samples back and they would do some investigation to kind of rule out bear, squirrel, you know, anything that's going to be climbing that tree. And they were looking for, you know, this Bigfoot DNA. And this kind of goes into the team that looked at this DNA. So there were over 100 samples tested through a Dr. Melba S. Ketchum, who is the lead scientist for a group called the Sasquatch Genome Project. Mm -hmm. And you can go to the SasquatchGenomeProject.org and look at all the people working on this. And you'll see that uh, they've got a heck of a team 
looking into this. There's a Dr. Patrick Wolkiewicz, Ph.D., a Dr. Andreas Holzenberg, Ph.D., a Dr. Douglas G. Toller, a medical doctor, Dr. Tom Pritchettko, PhD, and also Dr. Fang Zhang, another PhD. And if you go to their website, you can actually read the bios on these people and you'll see that this is a, this is a crack investigative team that's looking into this. And uh, Dr. Meljum, uh, Melba S. Ketchum, she's actually a doctor of vet- veterinarian science. And, she, and like I said, she's the lead scientist. And she's the founder of DNA Diagnostics, Inc. And from what I understand, um, she looks into DNA of like dogs looking for, you know, traces of certain DNA that would cause a dog to have a certain disease and things of that nature. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so that's kind of what she does, and she's started this genome project. So it's it's a very interesting thing that's going on. They actually wrote a white paper talking about how they discovered a DNA sample that seems to point towards a hybrid human DNA strand that they found in this going back to like 10,000 B.C., Something like that. I, I didn't get a chance to read the paper, so it would be beneficial to go back and do that. But they, they did actually write a scientific paper that they tried to get peer-reviewed. And from what I understand, that peer review basically got laughed out. Now, um, just it, just so everybody knows, peer review is when the, uh, the paper is presented to other people, PhDs and stuff, and they critique it. Exactly. Exactly. And like I said, it was it was laughed off. Um, you know, they they tried to attack uh, how they did things and, and who, you know, they tried to say that uh, uh, Dr. Ketchum was not a an expert in DNA analysis of this type and and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But, the, you know, I'm just laying out the facts here. Right. Um, going back to Dave, uh, he's also a director for the North American Bigfoot Research. He's written 12 books. Um, he's written books on Bigfoot and the missing 411 series mm-hmm. and he's produced three documentaries and that's missing 411 uh missing 411 the hunted and the missing 411 ufo connection which i believe came out not too long ago maybe a few months ago hmm. um which i also watched that that was a really good one so you know if you've got amazon netflix something like that you know definitely look up the these uh documentaries take a look they're really good and and this is like i said this is somebody that it's He's got a ton of uh, training in this, and he's backed up what sounds to be a lot of academia is basically yeah. out there with him. Oh, yeah. And some of these are, I want to say in particular, this um, the medical doctor, I believe it was, like I said, I have to go back and look at the, the website bios, but one of them has actually worked in law enforcement forensics, mm. forensic science. So that's that's one of the people on that list. So, yeah, it's, it's from some very smart people into this. Nice, nice. All right. So we definitely have a good reference for this. So, <laughs> so oh yeah, all right. So where do we go? Where do we go from here? Then we got the guy that's definitely doing the the the, uh, the investigation and his team. Exactly. So in 2010, he was at a national park doing some peripheral research. He doesn't explain what that research was, but I believe he was doing um, a, a talk in front of some search and rescue guys. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I don't know exactly, but he was he was doing some peripheral research and he was staying in a hotel outside of the park and he was approached by a plain clothes park ranger. Um, I don't know if he was off duty or retired, 
But he came to Dave because he knew of his his investigative background and some of the stuff he was into, and he had information regarding what looked like a cover up of missing persons in national parks. He, he he talked to Dave and said, "Hey, you need to look at this. There's there's uh, something funny going on with this, and how they treat it, what happens afterwards, and this sort of thing." Right. So Dave goes on to file a series of Freedom of Information Act requests for missing people in their system, and he got a call from a attorney who represented the park system and asked Dave why he wanted this info, which is not something that they can do, you know, with a FOIA request. You're not allowed to ask why somebody wants something. Right. And and a um, lot of time a FOIA is freedom of information. It could be used for book stuff. It could be used for research. It could be used for newspaper. It could, it's, it, it's Freedom of Information Act. Exactly. Exactly. He goes on to claim that they don't have a list and they don't keep track of missing persons in the national parks. And that doesn't sound right. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, you can go to any municipality in the country and say, hey, you got a list of missing people and they'll either point you to their website or they'll print you out a list right there on the spot. They've got it. People people keep that list. Dave goes on to say, "Okay, I want an author's exemption. So a month later, he gets a call from a regional coordinator out of Denver that claimed that his books weren't in enough libraries to Mm -hmm. count for that exemption. Who's are nowadays? Go ahead. Right, right. right. (laughs) Who goes to the library? So Dave finally, he was like, okay, so how much money is it going to take to get this information? There is basically is. what he laid it down. So they said, okay, we'll, we'll get back to you. So a couple of weeks later, the regional coordinator calls back and says, okay, well, a list from Yosemite is going to cost you $34,000. And a list for the entire system is going to cost you $1.4 million. And of course, Dave's like, uh, excuse me, um, why, why is this going to cost so much? And so I think they claimed that, you know, they were going to have to pay somebody or a, a group or a company to come out at $65 an hour to go to each one of these sites and dig through their records and, and put together this list that apparently doesn't exist. And that was their claim for how much the price was going to be. Holy so crap. Obviously something fishy going on. Uh, it's yeah. obvious that they don't want that information getting out or if, if we'll, we'll give them some, you know, you know, benefit of the doubt, you know, they're incompetent at least. Right. At, let, at not putting it let's think about this, right? <clears throat> you go out and, and remember uh, the parks department, they have investigators, they have their, you know, their own police, they have their own investigations. They send out search and rescue, right? They, they do that. Exactly. Right? Yep. So there's no list of how many times search and rescue was called out to go look for someone. Are you kidding me? You can't. Oh, but a- Apparently, they keep a list of of all the production companies that have uh, filmed out in the parks going back to 1950. So they're going to keep that list, but not something more important like missing people. Yeah, we had to keep in the Coast Guard. Like I said, we did a lot of search and rescue and stuff like that. I could have went back and and we could have pulled which boat crew went out, how many times they went out, what the call was, how long, who was on the crew, how how long we were. That's how much information we could I could have pulled at the Coast Guard. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So many professionals told Dave, they're like, there's no way they don't have a list. Um, So Dave had to kind of go about it the the old fashioned way. He went through newspaper articles. He went and visited some of these families from the newspaper articles and and went through these stories. And um, he found that uh, most of these cases were discovered in a category called missing presumed dead, which is basically a purgatory for these cases. Yeah. 
Um, and this happens after about 10 years. So this means that, okay, they're missing presumed dead. We're not looking for them. But if you want to come and get some information about it, well, it's still an open case. Right. So you can't get it. So over the span of about 10 years, he discovered over 1,600 people missing in North America. And he claims that it's likely much more. And these are people who follow a certain uh, criteria that he has come up with. So this isn't, you know, everybody who's gone missing. This is this is the missing 411 people. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that's interesting about Dave is that he's working with a guy by the name of John D'Souza. And I had never heard of this guy before. But apparently he was an FBI special agent from 1988 to 2013, so over 25 years in the FBI. Mm -hmm. He's done everything from 9-11 to the, the World Trade Center bombings that came before that, right. um, the Unabomber, all, all kinds of stuff. And he claims, and this is where it gets really crazy, he claims that the first season of the X-Files was taken directly from his investigations early on in the FBI. Well, I'm going to have to go watch he, that. Yes, yes. He's now an author and presenter, but John D'Souza is the de facto Fox Mulder who was in the FBI doing some of these investigations. Mm. And so when the X-Files came out, and I always had a feeling that uh, Chris Carter, who was the uh, uh, producer for the X-Files, had some friends in high places to be able to make a show like that. Yeah, you had, so, he had to have somebody. Right? <laughs> right. But yeah, John D'Souza. Go look him up. He's, he's, he's an important... Or he had uh, to have something on somebody. Either way. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so what's so special about these disappearances? So mm -hmm. we're, we're going to go into this criteria. So what Dave did is he ruled out things like, okay, uh, uh, if there's a suspect in the case, he ruled that out. Um, if there was any history of mental illness in the, the person who disappeared, he ruled that out. Okay. Um, if it was a voluntary disappearance um, or likely a voluntary disappearance, he took that out. What's a voluntary um, disappearance considered? Um, that would be like, you know, you're tired of society. You're, you're done with it. You're, you're just going to go out in the woods and just be in the woods and you don't want to be found. Got that it. kind of person. He, if there was any evidence of animal predation, he takes that out. Okay. Of the equation. And that's something easy to, you know, that's that's something that you come onto the scene of that. You kind of know exactly what's what's yeah, going on there. Absolutely. Um, so the criteria that he follows and the first line item we have is the bloodhounds can't find a scent or unwilling or afraid to track the, dis the, the missing person. So this is cases like he gives examples of, uh, you know, they'll give the dog the scent and the, the dog will just, you know, kind of walk around, curl up, lay down and that's it. And that's a very odd, that's a very odd behavior of a, of a dog like that who's trained and lives for that hunt. I mean, this, this is not, these aren't lazy dogs. You know, you give them a scent and they're going to go for it. Yeah, that's what and, they live for. And w w like I said, we had a, we worked with the sheriff's department who had um, dogs that would come out and sniff for drugs. To them, it's playing. It's playtime. They're searching for yeah. their toys they're searching for their things whatever it is it's playtime and dogs like to play you get younger dogs that want to go out want to run around it's very weird for a dog to not want to play now it's out there working trying to find someone but to the dog it's playtime and and you're trying to basically saying that a dog doesn't want to play that's, that's right weird. right yeah, exactly. Very strange thing to happen. Our, our next line item is the victim is usually missing clothing. They're either missing shoes, um, gloves, uh, sometimes all of their clothing. Um, sometimes they'll be half dressed. Um, weird, weird things like that, like their pants will be down at their knees or, or something like that. Just just, uh, um, you know, something weird going on with their clothing. Okay. Um, another line item is this happens near boulder fields or, say, uh, berry fields. 
Another line item is soon after the person goes missing, there's bad or inclement weather associated with the disappearance that hampers the investigation. If the body is found, they are found near creeks or bodies of water. The time frame for these disappearances seem to uh, seem to roll around 4 to 5 p.m. in the afternoon, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Very, very specific there. If they are located and they're alive, they're usually found unconscious or semi-conscious. And when they come to and are questioned, they can't account for their disappearance, which is complete mental block. Mm. If they are found alive, they usually have a low-grade fever, which is interesting. Mm. They are most often found in an area that was previously searched multiple times. Uh, Let's see the next line item. And this one, this is where it gets really interesting. So there seems to be uh, two sides of the spectrum of people that go missing. So the first side is a significant number of physicists, physicians, and other extremely intelligent people of German descent. So, you know, we talked about in a few of the other episodes about the Germans and how they they always pop up in all this weird stuff for some strange reason. And on the other side of the spectrum, we have a significant number of autistic, dementia, and other intellectually or physically challenged individuals, but nobody in the middle. So, like, people like you or I, if we go out there, you know, we're less likely to go missing than these people. So, then you've got 52 geographical clusters of these missing people, and they seem to be around these national parks. And and Dave goes on to kind of hint... When you look, you know, he shows a map and it would be, it would probably be uh, good to show a map up on the screen for the Absolutely. audience. But um, he has a map where he has all the pins where, where everybody's gone missing. In the center of the United States, right there, there's nothing. Like there's hardly any, anybody going missing. And he kind of makes the claim or, or kind of hints towards the fact that, you know, if you're robbing banks, mm. you're going to go out of state to rob a bank. You're not going to rob a bank in, in your town or close by because eventually investigators are going to, you know, draw lines and, and kind of figure out where yeah. you're coming from and where you live. And so he kind of claims that, well, maybe something's going on with that. And I took a look at it and realized that there aren't very many national parks in the center of the United States. Right. It's not. It's a lot of farmland. It's a lot of clearing. It's a lot of opening. Um, yeah, there, there's probably some, you know, wildlife management areas or some B, BLM areas and stuff like that. But no, no national parks. Right. Um, not a lot of them anyway. Very few. We go on from this to some of the cases, and there are a ton of them. So it took a little while to kind of pinpoint a few cases, and I only had so much time. So... The first case we're going to look at is the McGrogan case, and this happened to a Dr. James McGrogan, 39 years old, uh, March 14th, 2014. He was a marathon runner. He's in excellent shape. Um, He disappeared while hiking a heavily trafficked trail outside of Vail, Colorado, and he started up this trail with three other friends at 8 a.m. He was carrying a split snowboard, a cell phone. Um, helmet, backup battery for his cell phone, GPS unit, avalanche beacon, shovel, medical. He was he was ready. He was ready for anything. Yeah. Right. So he goes up this trail with his friends, and at 10 a.m., the party reached a resting spot to take a break. And McGrogan, being the marathon runner that he is, kept going and told the men that he would meet him at the next location. So that was at 10 a.m. That was the last known sighting of Dr. McGrogan. All right. So let's just I want to put this put this in. Is there any more information on him? On him? No. But on on what happened to him? Yes. All right. Then go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So at 10 a.m. That was his last known sighting. So the three friends after they got through resting, they headed up to the spot where they were supposed to meet him at. And he wasn't there. So they thought that he had continued on. So they went to the next spot. 
At 5 p.m., this is seven hours later after searching for him, one of the men went back down the mountain to get help to uh, try to search him. Search uh-huh. for him. There was a five-day search that was conducted, including helicopters uh, with infrared, forward-looking infrared, search and rescue, the whole nine yards. Yeah. Um, after five days, the weather turned bad. I think it rained for like the entire week or something like that, and the search was called off. 20 days later, three hikers found McGrogan's body four and a half miles away on an ice sheet at Booth Creek, an area that had been searched previously. Um, his boots and his gloves were missing and never found his backpack was found nearby with his GPS, his phone, spare battery. And when they, you know, tested his phone, it turned on and had a charge. I think Dave, Dave actually went out there and discovered that he would have had, you know, enough cell phone service to to call for help if he needed it. Right. He was wearing a helmet and upon the coroner's autopsy, he was found to have had uh, severe head injuries, trauma to the left side of his chest, and a broken femur. After reading all this, I was like, okay, well, let's, let's kind of play this out, right? Um, so he, he leaves the party and he heads up the trail. So let's say he encounters someone or something. Um, you know, if something was ahead of him, you know, he could have just turned around and came back. Correct. If something was behind him, he could have just kept going up the trail. So there must have been two or more entities that would have uh, that he would have encountered to force him off of this trail. So he would have been forced off the trail. The trail that he was found on was on the other side of a mountain. So he would have had to gone to the top over this mountain to get to this other trail. And so I was like, okay, let's say his life, he thinks his life is in danger so much so that pulling out his cell phone and calling for help really wouldn't have done him a whole lot of good, right? Because mm-hmm. it's going to take time for them to come up there, uh, somebody to find where he's at and, and actually give him help. So he's, so I'm thinking in my head that he's thinking in his head that his life is in danger and I've got to get at least to a safe point to where I can call for help. And so I was like, okay, so he makes it this four and a half miles. He had seven hours to do it. That I believe that would have been plenty of time to do to, to get to that distance. But where was he at for the five days they were searching for him? You know, had he made it over that mountain and let's say whoever was whoever or whatever was chasing him actually got him, pushed him off into that that Booth Creek and uh, you know, caused the injuries and let's say they stole his boots or stole his gloves or whatever. You know, why didn't they steal anything else? Right. And and like I said, where was he at for those five days? You know, it was 20 days later when they found him. So that that's 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 a pretty odd disappearance, right? Yeah, and, and a couple of things to think of, too, is, all right, so we have somebody who knows they're an experienced hiker, right? He decides that he's like, I'm going to go ahead and move on. It was his decision to move to move forward and go up the hill, right? Right. But he's an experienced hiker. He's he knows the woods. He wants to be in the woods. He probably likes being in the woods. He feels comfortable in the woods. This is, you know, something that these normal hikers feel more aptitude with. Right. So if it was one thing, it had to be something fast and scary that he jetted. And his his somebody who's a woods person would say, well, I'm going to go in the woods. I'm going to run through these trees. Right. Because I've got, you know, I've got gear. I'm going to cut through these trees. I'm not going to stay on the path because if I'm looking at, at something that I, I'm, I'm not going to outrun a bear on a path. Right. right it's right. not going to happen. My best bet is to hit the woods and possibly find a tree I can climb or find something that I can, you know, get behind into that safety. So it is a possibility that whatever he did see, right, was fast enough to chase him. 
that he felt safer to run through brush and trees than to jet down a path. Does that make exactly. sense? Okay. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it could have been that, or like I said, it could have been multiples of whatever it was that kind of herded him in that direction off the trail. Right. The issue now I have is the shoes, right? So, so look, there's times where you, you wear shoes for long periods of time with socks. And next thing you know, you get all that prickly heat stuff down your feet and you have to, you have to protect your feet. Your main thing you want to protect is your feet. It's your feet. To oh, yeah. take off oh, yeah. your shoes and be found without them and never found, that I have a pro- that's, that's to me why. No experienced hiker would say, I got to leave these behind. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, you're, 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 that's just not something you're going to do. Right. So th- this is, so uh, let's look at this from another aspect too is when you talked about where this is all happening. If I was somebody or something that wanted this to happen, where am I going to hit? Well, I'm probably going to hit the most concentrated wooded area that is more possible to find my prey, which would be these national parks that people go to to hike, right? Rather than the middle, you know, open areas that have smaller parks that have a better possibility. I mean, if I'm going to, if I had the best possibility to, to, hunt something as a prey i'm going to go to a national park because one i'm going to be able to hunt more without being caught per se um because it's a national park it's a larger park it's it's you know it's hard to cover that area and they but i also have a lot of my prey that are going there for the specific reason to go to that park to hike that park yep yep right so mm-hmm. if i'm something that's either already there or looking to go there, that's pretty much, I'm not going to go to the open areas. I'm not going to go to the farmland, to the fields, to the, the grazing locations of the country. I'm going to focus my energy on, the, on that wooded hiking area because it's harder to find the evidence. It's easy pickings. It's easy pickings. Go ahead. Yep. All right. So uh, the, the next case we talk about, or we're going to talk about, is uh, the case of Bobby Bissup. And this happened August 15th, 1958. So this stuff goes back a good long wow. ways. So Bobby Bissop was a 10-year-old kid. He was a special needs child. He was deaf. Um, he had a hearing aid. So I, I imagine he had some, some ability to hear, but not clearly not as much as us. Um, he was at a Catholic church summer camp. Um, he was hanging around. I believe it was a lake he was hanging around. And at 6 p.m., a camp counselor told Bobby it was time to eat. So Bobby was walking with him back to the camp to eat from the time that he first saw Bobby to the time he got back, Bobby went missing somehow with this camp counselor. Like maybe he turned his back for, you know, a minute thinking Bobby was right behind him following and then all of a sudden, boom, Bobby's gone. So at 630, so this is 30 minutes after he first saw Bobby, 630, a search was initiated um, and that ended up being a four-day search with bloodhounds, helicopters. Um, There were 300 people that covered 16 square miles looking for Bobby, and they found absolutely nothing. Um, They actually thought Bobby was hiding, so, you know, they they had that in their mind as they're doing this search. Uh, But he was never found until a year later, three camp counselors found his remains in an area that had been previously searched, They found his hearing aid, some bits of clothing, a few small bones, and nothing else. 
This was three and a half miles from his last known location, 2,500 feet in elevation above where he was last seen, and this is above the timberline. So if you can imagine if you're in a helicopter and you're above the timberline, you can see pretty good. You're going to spot this kid if he's up there. Um, So this is another situation where we have something weird going on and and you first and the first thought is you know animal predation that's you know that's your first thought if they found some bits of bones and and you know something happened to him that was animal related but they would have seen that they would have found that they would have found you know they would have found blood uh maybe they would have found the predator in in the woods that had caused this you know something but they didn't find anything until a year later now he was in a stream and he was found up or downstream? Uh, upstream. Upstream. Yeah, that's okay. So, so you would think, like, if Bobby was lost, obviously you go downstream. Everything's going to be downhill to get back home, right? You would think. Well, I, well, he's 10, and I have no, you know what I mean? But, yes. Well, it's also, you got to think, too, if you're a 10-year-old kid, you're not going to want to exert yourself going uphill. You're going to want to come downhill, right? Correct. Especially if you haven't eaten, and so you're probably somewhat hungry. Even if you're not, it's still, you know what I mean? It's easier to put, you know, energy downstream. Or if he would have fell and cracked his head open, let's just say, somehow, he would have ended up downstream. Right, right. And like I said, they covered 16 square miles with 300 people in a helicopter. They would have found something. Yes. And, And we're talking three and a half miles from his last known location, so that's a good long walk. Yeah. Up, uphill. <laughs> right. Yeah. So mm. uh, Dave talks about these dis- disappearances having a hopscotch effect. So, you know, he was looking for some kind of pattern of, you know, this kid goes missing here. And then maybe, you know, a month later, this kid goes missing in the same location or this person goes missing. But he found out it's there's no clear pattern as to how it happens. It'll happen in Yosemite. And then all of a sudden on the East Coast, somebody will go missing maybe a month later. And then somebody will go missing somewhere else, you know, a month later. So it's very random that these events occur. Right. Um, and like I said, overall, in, well, overall, looking at the map, the clusters center around mountains and bodies of water. Mountains, bodies of water. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the bodies of water thing, that's, that's one of those things that just kind of piques my interest. Like, what's going on there? Right. Since, since uh, doing this 411 series, Dave has also looked into the disappearances of hunters, which is a unique category in that they're usually avid outdoorsmen. Right. Um, sometimes they are with their dogs and more importantly, they're carrying firearms. Yeah. So, and, and Dave has said, um, you know, th- th- this is, this is his advice to anybody wanting, wanting to go out into the woods. He said, carry a firearm and carry a GPS locator beacon. Yeah. Not a, not, not a GPS, you know, unit that tells you where you are, but a GPS locator beacon that can tell everyone else where you are. Yeah. We call them P perbs. Um, and E-perbs, yeah. <laughs> electronic positioning devices, P-perbs, because uh, on, on, that's what they stood for. In the Coast Guard, we could activate if we fell in the water saying, oops, uh, we're right, here. Right, right. Yep. Right. Um, and he says that no one has ever gone missing with those two items. Yeah. So that's, that's you know, that, that's why he, he pushes that. Um, so in looking into these hunters, there's uh, the story that he covers in uh, his uh, second documentary, and this is uh, Thomas Messick, and this happened September 15th, 2015. Now, he was Thomas was a U.S. Army veteran. He was 82 years of age. Um, he taught kids how to hunt. 
Um, he had an accident at some point where gunpowder went off in his face and he lost an eye. Mm. Um, he went missing at Brant Lake, um, well, near Brant Lake at Lily Pond in New York State. Um, they went up there with a party, a hunting party of seven. And what they did was, is they got on ATVs and they would go out there and basically uh, set some hunters out to sit and wait. And then the other team members would go around this hillside and push the uh, the deer over the hill to, towards these hunters, right? Yeah. There were four elderly hunters that basically they, they would drop off at the edge of the road and they would venture in about 30, 40 yards from the road and they would sit and wait. Um, and they were spread out probably a couple hundred yards from each other. Um, and Tom was furthest from the lake. So he was kind of out there at the end of the line, so to speak. Okay. The other three younger members were the ones that followed up behind the hill and to drive the deer to them. Right. They had a hunt. It lasted two hours and they thought it odd that no one spotted any wildlife, no squirrels, no birds, no chipmunks, no nothing, Jeez. nothing in the woods. Okay. Um, all the members carried walkie talkies and rifles. Okay. So they had clear communication amongst each other and all, yeah. and all that good stuff. And one of the party, me- actually the party members, um, who could remember this, they heard a strange sound in the woods coming from the top of the hill. Um, and I believe they claimed that it sounded like some kind of metallic clanging or slamming sound that occurred. And I've heard of, I've heard people talk about this before. And I find it interesting, um, but that's like, I mean, that's literally the only thing they heard out in the woods because there wasn't any wildlife going right. on. At about 3 p.m., the men, the men gathered around the vehicles and realized that Tom was missing, like he, he didn't come up from the road. Um, so they started firing signaling shots, trying to get Tom's attention. They were hollering out for him. Um, uh, they eventually called the rangers. Uh, they spent all night looking for Tom. Um, and September 16th, uh, the next day, full-scale search began with helicopters with forward-looking infrared, state police, Air National Guard, search and rescue, fire department, and other volunteers. I think there was like 300 people total. Um, the search effort, the people who were on the search also claimed that they thought it was strange that they did not see or hear any wildlife while they were searching. Hmm. Um, even the, uh, and we're talking, you know, the the officials sitting there saying, you know, we thought it was odd that there wasn't any anything out in the woods. That's that's not something that's that's normal around here. So on the second day of the search, it starts raining heavily, and I think it rains for like a week, hampering the progress. Nothing was found of Tom. Not his gun, his walkie-talkie. Um, and they, they said something about it. He had some kind of candy bar, protein bar, something like that. They didn't find the wrapper. No clothing, nothing was found of Tom. On the fourth day two FBI agents arrive, which is not something that normally happens on a missing person's case. Like they, they'll go out and say they'll, 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 um, you know, offer assistance. If there's like a child missing under certain right. circumstances, they'll go do that. Um, but this, this was, uh, you know, these two FBI agents, it was a strange occurrence that they showed up and they told Tom's wife that his disappearance was strange. And that's basically it. Huh. Um, that, that's the only information that they got out of them. So that, that was interesting. Hmm. And uh, Dave had found reports after you know listening to this story, he had found reports going back to the 1960s showing that the FBI has monitored numerous missing persons cases that are eerily similar to the Thomas Messick case. 
On November 26th, the search was called off, and nothing has ever been found of Tom. What's the what's the flag for them? You, I wonder. Like, what's the uh oh? We got another one situation. You know what I mean? That's a good question. You know what what what's the key word there? Yeah. Somebody says over the phone where they're like, okay, we need to go look. At yeah. This. <laughs> right. Hmm. And it could be maybe they're they're monitoring all these missing persons cases, and then they're just kind of waiting for those keywords to pop well, that's up. That's what I'm saying. Like, right. Normally, it's like, okay, well, nah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what's that? What'd you say? Say that again. You know, and and so you wonder what the what the the flag work is for them to basically say we're on our way. You know, huh. perhaps it was the uh, the the wildlife. No wildlife show. Maybe up. because that that was you know that was reiterated by several people that hey you know there was no wildlife. That was strange. Yeah. Um, and, and like I said, I've heard that before from other different encounters of people out in the woods who, who you know, didn't go missing and did come back. Right. And, you know, I've heard people saying, you know, I've been out in the woods and all of a sudden everything just goes dead quiet. And it's very eerie. And, you know, usually that usually that's because, you know, some kind of predator has entered into the area and everybody's, mm -hmm. you know, keep it quiet. Um, but, you know, sometimes it could be something a little different, maybe even worse, <laughs> you know, yeah, this, because this going on out there at that time. Yeah, because um, we have, you know, a lot of stuff we have is like if uh, birds or a hawk comes in or an owl comes in, the birds go nuts. Telling, yeah, you know, that, yeah. that, 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 so it's got to be something that's like, oh, never mind. Shh. Yeah, that's got to be something that nobody's going to fight back. They're exactly. like, okay, we're just going to keep quiet and hunker down, you know. Huh. So, um, so after this occurred, what was interesting is that on – so the uh, it, the search was called off tw the 26th because on November 24th of 2015, and this was 40 miles south of Tom's disappearance, a guy by the name of Fred Drum, who was 68, also an avid hunter, goes yeah. missing. His wife uh, leaves the house to go to a banquet, and when she returns, she couldn't find him. His car was there. Everything was there. But uh, Fred was nowhere to be found. Mm. Um, and that was another case where they went through and, and tried to search for him. And nothing was ever found of this guy either. And this happened, you know, a day after they or a, a couple of days before they called off uh, the, uh, you know, the Tom's looking for Tom. So that was interesting. Wow. Um, from here, this this case was really interesting and why I brought this up. This isn't a missing persons case. Uh, but this this one we'll call the uh, I believe Dave calls it the uh, uh, Lima Ohio predator. Okay. So this happened August 29th, 2010. And what's interesting about this is the people involved. Um, it was a, a Jan and Bruce Maccabee. And Bruce Maccabee is a PhD. Um, he's an optical physicist. And uh, his wife, Jan, she's an avid bow hunter. Hmm. And so she was hunting on their property in a tree stand. Mm -hmm. um, she was in earshot of the high school band who at the time was, was you know, practicing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this was like maybe a half mile away from her. And this was around 6.20 p.m. She said the woods went dead quiet and caught her attention pretty quickly. Hmm. Um, and she claimed that she thought she had a floater in her eye. You know, how you get those floaters in your yeah. eye and they, they kind of get in your vision. You're like, oh, yep. um, and then she realized that it wasn't, there was some kind of strange entity that looked like the predator in the trees in front of her. Really? 
she she said that uh, it, it she sat there for a minute looking at this thing and then it moved and she was you know she was struck by this and she said it reached over 12 to 15 feet to another tree and kind of pulled itself over to this other tree so in, in the middle of this uh, she she pulled out her phone she took a picture yeah uh, Bruce her husband being a PhD optical physicist yeah. you know looked at the you know investigated the photo so the picture was taken with a blackberry it's kind of one of those older blackberries for the yeah. we're talking like a 1024 by 768 resolution so yeah. kind of some old stuff here well something happened to the camera on the phone at the time she took a picture so she mm. took a picture before the event nothing wrong with that she took a picture after the event Nothing wrong with that picture, but the picture she took of the entity somehow changed the resolution of the phone to 500 by 400, which is a resolution that the phone doesn't even take a picture at. Wow. That's and so, so he found that awfully, awfully interesting. Actually, if you look at the photo, and it's in the, the documentary when you watch it, you can see the photo. Yeah. You can actually see what looks like hair, like almost, almost like Jan took a picture of herself. And you could see her hair off to the side, and there's like a lot of kind of rainbow issues with the picture and all kinds of things going on in there. But you can see this hair, and she claims that, well, you know, it wasn't a, it, you know, at the time they didn't have the forward facing cameras, it was, you know, straight out the back. Right. And she said if she had her hair up, so even if she took a picture of herself, it wouldn't show up like that. So it's a really, really odd picture hmm. um, that shows up on this camera. So she says the encounter lasted about 10 to 15 seconds. Um, and the wildlife sounds returned shortly after this thing just kind of disappeared. She said, you know, it climbed over to this other tree and then it just kind of vanished. And what's interesting is that the high school band, which was comprised of about 30 to 40 people, reported a bright light over the football field at the same time that this event occurred. So, hmm. you know, we have we have some correlation going on with, with this sighting. So that's very yeah. interesting. That's weird. Huh. <laughs> so, so the question becomes, you know, when you, you hear about this stuff and, and, you know, I, I encourage you to go listen to, uh, all of Dave's interviews. They're really good on his channel. He's, he's got his Bigfoot 101 classes that are excellent because right. he goes into the history and, and that sort of thing. But the question becomes like, what's, what's, what's the answer to this mystery? It's, it's, it's a heck of a mystery for sure. Yeah. And it, it you obviously have some stuff that's out there that, okay, there's an answer for this and, you know, this is what happened, right, in, in regards to these missings. And there is possibilities. But the issue is, is that it starts to become more and more of the same type of situations. And it's like the shoes for me is a big one, right? Yeah, Nobody, yeah. You, you might take your, your feet, your shoes might get wet and you might, you know, take them off to dry, put them in the sun, and, and but you're next to them. You're not leaving without them unless something makes you leave without them, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. You, you might take your socks off and wring them out and just put your and, and just put your shoes back on. But again, you're no avid hiker. Most people wouldn't do it. Is going to go without shoes? Uh, no, that's, they're not. That's a big deal, right? That's one. Now, again, like I said, looking at the the mindset of the people, if something is what, let's say if something was going to chase them or something was coming at them, you're not going to, you're, you're going to look at this situation and say, okay, I'm not going to outrun that animal. My best bet is to dive into the woods because that's going to slow him down. And hopefully I can, you know, get enough time to get up a tree or get someplace. Right. So I could see them going off the path, an experienced hiker, 
because they're going to, in their mind, they're like, I'm fine. I, I, I can go into the forest for protection. Right, right. But you, then you have, to, you know, eventually you think to yourself, okay, I'm safe or this and this happened. And where's my cell phone? Where's my cell phone? Right. You're right, calling something. Right. You're texting somebody. You're doing this. Exactly. Trying to get the message out. Yeah. You're trying, you know, that, that, this, and even if you're, you're out there, um, you, you text, a text might go through before a phone call goes through. You're going to send something. Right. Right. And now regards to searching. Now, I, again, I've never searched on land. I've done uh, what we call Victor Sierra searches, which is, you know, you have to, it calculates drift and a whole bunch of other stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's a different, you know, it's not just a grid search and things like that. Can you miss things? Well, you can. Um, but a lot of times after the second or third one, somebody is usually like there are times where if we're doing Victor Sierra searches, we might have a second boat come in, right? And so that you're getting a second set of eyes with a second thing. So it's just shocking that these people, after several searches, and it's probably different people crisscrossing these searches, these search patterns, nothing was found. And then all of a sudden, there he is. Well, there's his body. There's his body. And in the case case of Tom, um, they actually, in the documentary, kind of tell you how they did the searches. And they were talking about, you know, they would do a search. They basically be at, you know, arm's length away from each other doing grid patterns in in there. And they would bring string with them to string all of the different areas that they had previously searched. And they would go back over them multiple times. Right. And these are trained people. These are trained people who know how to search. They're not out there with their cell phones texting while walking and kicking their feet they're they're literally you're looking every place you go and then you're marking that off and things like that so yeah they're they're searching lakes they're searching the side of the road you know they they had at one point thought that maybe he'd gotten hit by a car so they searched the sides of all the roads to try to find him so i mean they really covered their bases on that one it's interesting it's interesting i mean what are you thinking my thought at the beginning was kind of a feral people type of episode where you have these people out in the woods um you know boots would be probably a very a very high dollar item right. for you to have if you're a feral person like if you got if you got some boots you're you're doing pretty good right um so that was my first thought but the problem became that 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 doesn't that doesn't fit with the timeline of how long they were missing right because even had that happened you know had had that been the case they still would have found his body in the search, but they didn't. They didn't find it until way later. So where was he? You know, there there's some kind of there was some kind of kidnapping that took place at right. some point. Um, that where where he was taken out of the area that was searched and then brought back. So hmm. that's that's where it, it it throws you know you know it, it throws everything out. You're like, well, now now what is it? So like. And then you could think like, okay, well, maybe there's like some kind of Bigfoot thing in the woods that's that's doing this. And, uh, you know, looking into that, there's, you know, we know we know very little about Bigfoot. So we don't know, you know, that it would it would take a type of I, I guess you could say it would take a type of technology to do what's being done, because it's almost like these people are being taken and then dr- literally dropped out of the sky back down. And that, that's where they find them with all right. these injuries. Yeah, so it, it, it's difficult. It's it's difficult to process, right? And and it's also hard. 
to kind of see and understand, you almost have to be there. But things don't float upstream, right? They go downstream. So you got a 10-year-old boy who's, you know, a lunchtime's there. Now, was the counselor, you know, truly making sure and keeping an eye on him? Well, probably not, right? Or he would have said, I just watched him disappear, right? Right, but right. Like, like I said, he probably turned his back for like a minute or two while he was walking and just didn't realize it. Right, and he could have been like, come on, let's go. I'm leaving you. I'm leaving, right? And he's walking away. Next thing you know, Oh crap! He never came out of the he never came out of the water uh, or the creek. But you now, have good. Now, now the the third option kind of goes back to my theory of what's going on underground. Mm. And okay. this, you know, if you go back and listen to those those episodes, you know, I talk about you know mountains and uh, these various different areas as being places where there was maybe at one point in time an entrance to an underground city, let's say. Mm-hmm. And these national parks, let's let's say, you yeah. know, we're we're a civilization, advanced civilization living underground, and we're kind of surveying the upper, uh, the the surface world, and kind of keeping tabs on things. You know, we're using our technology. You know, going back to say the entrances to these these underground facilities. Right. You know, if they're that old, there's been a lot of geographic activity and things to close off all of these different areas. You know, to to kind of hike out of. So they're using some kind of technology um, to get from the underground to above ground. Mm-hmm. And this is where you know you talk about portal technology. I, this is what I think they would be using. So when you hear stuff like, oh, we heard a sound that sounded, you know, metallic, like a door, a car door slamming or something happening. To me, this sounds like something entering into an area uh, from another space mm-hmm. using this portal technology. So almost like there's, you know, the air molecules in the area surrounding this, this portal opening is kind of causing, you know, a, a shockwave, so mm-hmm. to speak, to happen as they're entering into the area. So, and if you have this kind of technology, that would explain why there's just, these people are going missing without a trace. Because to, uh, to, to quote uh, a line from the X-Files, no one goes missing without a trace, right? right? And so, the, you know, this, this is where I, I have to go back to my theory and say this starts to make sense. Because, you know, they're, they're grabbing these people. I mean, we, we just talked about how, you know, they're grabbing physicists, PhDs of German descent. Right. Um, you know, why would anybody do that? Well, why did we have Operation Paperclip after World War II, right? We wanted the smart people. Right, right. You know, why are they grabbing these people who have, you know, autism, dementia, or, or some of these other factors? You know, they might be trying to study you know, just like we would, you know, why these things occur, why, why the human body is, is, you know, why autism occurs, you know, why dementia occurs and things of that nature, mm-hmm. just like they would, you know, uh, take a, a cow from a field, right? And, and study that to see what, you know, because that's our food chain, right? So now right. we're studying the food chain to see, you know, what we're eating. So, you know, all of these little pieces kind of come back to, you know, this underground civilization who's keeping tabs on the surface world, so to speak. Yeah. It makes you wonder, too, because, okay, we're doing it at mountains and waters. And is it possible you have, you know, the water comes down a mountain and, and, you know, could go into caves and things like that, you know, like springs and things, right? It would go down into that. And if you were going to have an underground civilization, having a water come down into your underground civilization would be fantastic. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So it, it, it... it is an area that if you were going to have, let's say, a door to 
to that area, I think that's where I'd put it, right? If I was going to do, if I had a possibility or had to live underground and, and I could pick the spot I want because I'm an advanced technology, I, I, I'm putting it in mountainous area. I've got more, you know, possibilities of caves and things like that. And hopefully where water comes down into my area where I now have access to water. Yep. Right? Exactly. So it, it is definitely a possibility. It's, it's, it makes sense on where that's at. Now, again, it's hard to say, you know, on, on why they're taking the individuals, basically. But man, who knows? Who, you know and, what I mean? and if you if you go down that rabbit hole and yeah. then you start to think about why the FBI is interested, why why is the national parks kind of hiding this information? You know, and and, and you know, the national parks could be doing this simply because it's bad for business, but yeah. there could be a more, you know, a a more kind of secretive thing going on between the FBI and the Park Service or or other entities that we don't even know about who do know the answer to this. Or, or maybe they've got a lot more information than we do in these investigations. So when you go down that rabbit hole, it kind of becomes, you know, you look at the FBI going into these investigations and you think, hmm, what are they, what do they know? Right? Right. What is some, yeah. And, and I've done, I had this conversation and I just did a video I'll be putting out later. Um, but people are like, well, you know, why haven't we had any evidence of Bigfoot? Why haven't we had any evidence of, of you know, this advanced civilization, these advanced people and things like that. And uh, there's a couple stories and I'll, I'll do this real quick. I've lived in Maine for 11 years, right? And in 11 years, I haven't seen a moose. No, I know they exist. I know that, but I'm in Maine in the woods in, in an area that down the street, there's moose, right? But, but I haven't seen one. Why? Right. Eleven years of feeding deers and stuff like that. So and it's the same thing where people are like, well, why haven't we seen a Bigfoot? And there's a story which I'll be covering of somebody who lived in the woods here in Maine for like 24 years and nobody knew it. He just went out and lived in the woods for 24 years. And the only reason they caught him was the fact that he had to rob cabins. To, to survive, to get food, to get, you know, stuff like that. So he actually had to come out into civilization and steal from civilization to survive, and they basically got him for burglary, right? But if you were something that did not have to survive on civilization, did not have to come out, if he did not have to come out and he could have ate off the land, like, let's say, some type of a Bigfoot or an advanced civilization, 24 years he went without being found, yeah, that's right? a really long 20, Right. I mean, so is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. If, you know, oh, yeah. so to have a Bigfoot out there and people say, oh, it doesn't exist because we haven't found it yet. Really? A human being was out in, in Maine where it's cold in Maine for 20 something years. And the only reason he was caught because he he was caught burglarizing. So to, to, to have somebody out there that nobody basically saw, nobody knew he was there, no idea. And, and he's just, you know, a regular, you know, smart, but a, a, a guy that just. Yeah, but most people don't realize how sheltered they are from all of this. Right. Like, you know, how many people are, are 10 miles out in the middle of the woods right now just kind of hanging out? Yeah. And it, like, you could probably, maybe maybe 100 people in North America. I don't know what the number would be, but it's definitely not a very big number. Right. And, and or, you know, I, look, I got bears that come down about five feet. Uh, they come down to my bird feeders at nighttime. 
right? I mean, I got cameras and stuff, so they're about five feet from my, my shed. Well, that same bear could be right in, right in my fence, uh, tree line sleeping. You know, there have been times where people have walked up. So my, my basic gist of this is there is a possibility of things that are out there that just because we have not seen them, just because we haven't found 100% evidence of, of it sitting there, I, I can't just put it past it's not there, right? Right. I, I've got to keep open to that. If it's it's a possibility, it is there, and and I'm gonna you know we should look for that type of stuff, and we should learn that type of stuff, and we should push our stuff to find out you know that it is it could be there. So oh yeah, oh yeah, exactly. And like I said, people don't realize how sheltered our lives really are. You know, everybody wakes up in their house in the morning, they go out to their car, they drive to work, they they work in a building, they. They get off. They get off work. They get in their car. They drive back to their house. They watch TV at night. You know, they're not. They're not hanging. They're not paying attention to everything around them. Right. They're paying attention to what they're doing. You know, like I said, they're driving. They're paying attention to that. They're paying attention to their work. You know, not everybody's looking up and looking out for UFOs. Not everybody's you know staring out off into the woods trying to find stuff. So it's it's people don't realize that. Yeah, and I think this is a good thing that because like I said, when you start to have these and people like Dave. We'll start to see these trends, these, ah, wait a minute, what's going on here? And, and in, in sometimes in different industries, when, you're, when your job is to look for trends, sometimes it's easier for you to see these trends. And then you start to say, okay, let me eliminate the stuff that I don't need here so, I don't, you know, so I'm not just creating a trend, <laughs> right? Let me eliminate right. this and let me see if there's a trend with, you know, still a trend. And there is. And there's a trend of things that are just weird. And, and and this is where I, I think you have any more basically, or was that your last missing? Oh, uh, that was the last one. Yeah, and I think that this is where the next step I think we need to go into is is into the into that unknown of a of possible Bigfoot and Bigfoot, you know, sightings and um, what could be advanced civilization sightings that exactly. we're, that we're basically saying, well, that's a Bigfoot. <laughs> okay. But there, there might be a possibilities because this is something else we talked about. And I think this is where we were going to kind of roll the show into um, next, correct? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, presuppositions that people have a Bigfoot that we're going to uh, go down that hole and take a look at that. Fantastic. Well, I'm excited for that one because, like I said, this is another um, avenue I, I'd like to talk about. I'd like to go into possibilities. And I want to thank you for doing all the research you did. And I definitely want to shout out to Dave from uh, Missing 411. And thanks for all the research he does um, into this stuff, too. So um, anything you want to finish up on? Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm ready for the next one now. Uh, perfect, because I'll be doing some research on that one, too, with some of the files that I'm pulling um, and seeing if there's anything without talking to each other, right, without us basically diving into each other's research. I want to see if there's anything we cross-reference. And I'm like, well, hang on. I've got that too, right? Um, oh, that, would be, that would be very interesting. Yeah. And, and so I think that's the, the next one of the that we do is basically you go down your road, I'll go down my road, and we'll see if there's any, any type of cross-referencing without, you know, cheating, basically. 
Exactly. That, that sounds awesome. I can't wait for that. Perfect. All right. Uh, thanks for coming on. I want to thank everybody for listening. Make sure you like and subscribe and, uh, you know, leave a comment. That's a big deal for, for us to get in the algorithms and get out there so people can see this. Even if it's, you know, uh, the number one, whatever you want to put down there, leave a comment. I really appreciate it. Uh, oh, yeah. Let us, let us know what you want to hear. Absolutely. Where do you want to send us? What research do you want us to do? And I've also, like I said, I've got hooked up with Cam um, from the Alicia Exploration. Uh, I'm sorry, Alicia Paranormal Exploration Team. And they might go out and investigate it if it's something you guys want us to check out. So definitely leave a comment, leave a message, shoot me an email, reach out, and uh, we'll see what we can do. Thanks again, Ben, for coming on. And uh, as always, guys, keep researching. Sage out.